Hello, everyone. We are back again. I'm just going to get right into it since we're running a few minutes behind. Um, so introducing um, Bonnie McLean um, from Assessment uh, with the presentation. Before you get your ducks in a row, you need to figure out what to do with the duck. Winner of best title of a presentation <laughs> award. Uh, so Bonnie, I'm going to let you take it away from here. Okay. Thank you, Derek. No, got your slides up. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll talk real fast. No, I have a tendency to talk real fast, so I apologize. And I'm going to apologize again for the broad stroke that I'm going to take with the presentation, but it's just basically seeds for our discussion. Uh, Derek, I don't see my, my slides, but I, I know what they are, so I'll just move forward. I hope, I hope everyone else can see them. Yeah, they can all see them fine. Okay, great. So what I mean by this title, uh, for the most part, is what questions are you trying to answer with your data? And what I'm suggesting is that you ask yourself that before you start gathering all the data. So what I'd like to do is introduce a paradigm shift in how we actually think about medical education analytics. There's no add-in cost to whatever your process might be. I'm just how about an awareness? We're just going to create an awareness and perhaps a behavior change in how we actually measure learning. So if we think about clinical research methods and particularly the randomized controlled trial because I think we all hold that up as the gold standard uh, because it provides efficacy of an intervention by eliminating the background noise created by individual variability in the way that disease presents and healing occurs. So what we're left with uh, using that model is an empirical knowledge that tells us how an intervention works, say, in an average patient. But we need to know if it, if it works in the patient that's standing right there. And when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, within the medical community. So because statements of value can't necessarily follow from statements of fact, I think we're all familiar with statistical um, significance doesn't really line up necessarily with clinical significance. And that's, what I, that's what I mean by that statement. So to jump from, say, research to practice, we need to consider values, those patients, those of society as a whole. And my belief is that medical education should provide more tools than just EBM alone can provide. So basically our assessments need to bridge both knowledge, you know, both gaps. And I like to look at it as a knowledge gap and perhaps a values gap. Um, next. So I wanted to make, uh, or just clarify a few assumptions up front before I start this brief talk. And I want to ask, are we developing metrics that capture all of the steps in clinical decision making, or are we just capturing the empirical? And what you can see from this chart is, I believe, and it's not, you know, this research shows that there's five uh, really valuable steps for cl clinical decision-making with, you know, empiric empirical research just being one of them. So we're going so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these assumptions in five steps. And we look at the results of clinical research, regardless of the quality and quantity of empirical evidence, if we only focus on that, there will be gaps that will remain. Same thing with clinical experience. Clinical experience is prone to cognitive biases. And behavioral data that we capture in charts it's fixed in time and place. It's not necessarily something we can generalize to other places and later times. And the pathophysiologic rationale, it's really just as good as our understanding of science. So this could be a little nudge to knowledge, uh, 
but again, we also have patient values and preferences, and we have system features that we need to consider as well. Next. So now in our integrated behavioral model, a quick glance at this, obviously, we see the knowledge and competence on the left, and you know, we, we all like to hope for the best, you know, pinch our carotid, hallucinate, and hope we're over there getting behavior out the other end. Not necessarily the case. We tend to focus on the extremes of the diagram without adequately considering that big gap that we see in the middle. Created, and th that gap, I'd like to say, is created somewhat by the limitations of empirical evidence and the use of self-report in evaluating medical education. And I think this aligns nicely with the prior uh, presentation where we talked about utilization and retention uh, leading to actual behavior. Next. So we have data. Most, a lot of us have a ton of data, but is it the right data? Are we actually hitting those higher outcomes that we set our goals towards, or is it like shifting deck chairs on the Titanic? So what I like to, what I want to reiterate is this intentional heterogeneity blindness that is in a controlled trial has brought with it a progressive shift from a qualitative documentation of the concrete to a quantitative assessment of the abstract. So we all throw a lot of sophisticated statistical inferences about summaries and effect size in average patients, but I believe that medical education should provide physicians with the ability to go beyond the simple application of empirical evidence to particular cases, utilizing all steps for cl clinical decision making, like we saw in that slide that had the five steps to clinical decisions. We want them to use all those in making a, in a goal to benefit individual patients. Uh, next. And this slide may give some of you shudders if you've ever had to sit through Six Sigma, but uh, basically, Evidence-based medicine is evolving to include consideration of values. That's kind of new for where it originated from. And we're looking at the values from the patient and the professional perspective prior to arriving at the medical decision. But what maybe isn't as clearly evident is there's a gap that's been left behind. And this gap exists because the empirical evidence is not directly applicable to individual patients. As the knowledge gained from clinical research, it doesn't directly answer the primary clinical question of what might be best for a patient. I think we can use an example of sitting through a medical education seminar, lots of learning is taking place, and then what's happening Monday morning in clinical practice. And I believe a lot of this is attributed to a conceptual error that's been made by grouping knowledge that originates from clinical experience and physiologic rationale under the heading of evidence and then there's a hierarchy that's been developed that reduces those forms of medical knowledge to the lower rungs. It's not necessarily rated as, the high, as high evidence as, say, a randomized controlled trial. When we go down and start looking at the um, actual patient-level information, it's sort of just set around as background noise. And I also believe that many CME professionals, myself included, have limited outcomes data in the past by focusing primarily on empiric findings. Um, next. So currently, we do measure how they how physicians practice. And physicians, and when I say physicians, I mean healthcare providers, clinicians, the whole gamut. 
and what and what the decisions are being made, but what we don't do is hang out in the why. Why are they doing what they're doing? And I like to think about it when an intervention that's effective in a clinical trial fails to work in a specific patient, clinicians have little choice but to move to alternative interventions uh, based on pragmatic rules of thumb or heuristics. And so let's look at limitations and how this might impact patient outcomes. How do we measure that behavior that's happening at the point of care? Up next. So um, basically this slide, innovative solutions are vital in, in reducing the use of low-value services in healthcare. And many of the presentations we've seen to date and are on the schedule for today and tomorrow are emphasizing measurement and analytics. Uh, because professionals tend to exercise judgment with evident confidence, sometimes solely based on their intuition. But there's several facts that are extremely relevant to human behavior. Humans, as a royal we, <laughs> have many decision biases. We don't, and the, the problem, and I think the number two reason here, this is even more important, is we don't have a good intuition about what those decision biases might be. And that's why we really need to measure. We can't rely on intuition alone. So how do we measure the justified confidence of, say, experts from the sincere overconfidence of professionals? Um, and that's the next slide. And this is my favorite slide because this answers the question I just asked. There's this misconception that opinions are the result of years of rational objective analyses, as stated here. But the truth is, these opinions are basically, we're paying attention to information that, that validates our confirmed beliefs. And what we do is we ignore information which challenges preconceived notions. And the we here is, uh, let's put that on the, the clinician, who's in a situation where he has to make a decision. So in many cases, especially in acute care medicine, clinicians have the results of many tests before they go in to see a, an acute patient, especially a critically ill patient. But the results of all those tests do not suggest the same diagnoses. So there's a cognitive trap that uh, someone could find themselves in that has to make this type of decision, and it's called um, anchoring bias. Because an anchoring bias is a tendency where we stick with our first impression even in the face of disconfirming evidence. So what that might mean is you have three different tests that tell you different things, but if you have a bias towards you know, one of these impressions, you may not even consider the other options that are available. Next. And an example of that that I think is hysterical and fun all at the same time is when you read this, there's a bat and a ball that cost $1.10, the bat's a dollar more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? Almost everyone, Stanford, Harvard, everybody, feels the temptation to answer 10 cents because a dollar 10 is neatly separated into a dollar and 10 cents, and 10 cents seems to be about right for a ball, but in fact, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is a nickel. And if you want me to step you through that, I will. I didn't get it right the first time either, so don't feel bad if you didn't. But people aren't accustomed to thinking hard and are often content to trust a plausible judgment that comes quickly to mind, like saying 10 cents. So you might choose to dismiss this little exercise as a tricky question, but pathologic mistakes and persistent miscalculations, smart people 
like all of us on this call, make. Uh, this is what is at the core of Professor Kahneman's research. Next. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, he's an Israeli-American psychologist and a Nobel laureate. He actually won the Nobel Prize for economics. I don't think they have one for psychology, but um, and he worked with Amos Tversky, a leading expert in judgment and human decision-making. And they founded the field of behavioral economics with a, a paper called Prospect Theory, an analysis of decision under risk. And so you could probably see why I thought this was directly applicable to medicine. So Homo economicus, or this human you see on this chart, he's a figurative human being, and he was characterized by economic theory for his infinite ability to make rational decisions. And what, it, what evolved with da Daniel Kahneman's research is that modern behavioral economists and neuroeconomists have demonstrated that human beings are in fact not rational in their decision making. And what they've done since then is argue that people like us, the royal we again, we make somewhat predictable irrational decisions. And this provides a better tool for modeling human behavior. Next. So what we have here is when people face uncertain situations, they don't carefully uh, evaluate the information or look up relevant statistics. Instead, the decisions depend on a long list of mental shortcuts, which often lead them to make suboptimal decisions, which is why, you know, in medical education, understanding what a guideline is or evidence-based medicine, you can now see where we have some opportunity to start addressing different sorts of gaps. Because when we're asked about the bat and the ball, we completely forget about our mathematics and we default to an answer that just requires a simple, uh, plausible response. At least I did. Um, next. So this is the, uh, the book, the title of the book by Daniel Kahneman uh, is Thinking Fast and Slow. And what they postulated is that the human mind is basically divided into two systems. Not biologically, but just in how thoughts are processed. So professionals are capable of handling decisions in, in two quite different ways. System one is like the fast, fast automatic, heuristic processing, uh, because deliberation is cognitively costly. Uh, and two is a more slow deliberative thought, which you can see here. And it, system one follows the what you see is all there is uh, principle, Why number two is a lot more um, thoughtful. So what Kenlin wants us to be aware of, it's not all bad news, what he says is, if you have to be aware of the biases created by this so that you're on guard to minimize the potential negative consequences. Those are his words. Um, so basically, a heuristic is a shortcut used when we're faced with a difficult clinical choice, uh, a clinical behavior, anything you know applies to us directly, anything with a difficult question. And in its place, we simply answer an easier question. And we do this naturally without even knowing it. Next. So, you know, what, we've, what we do in our survey analytics, um, or what we should be doing in our survey analytics, is, is looking towards these cognitive biases. Because if you can capture these and you can assess them, then you're aware that they're there and we can start really developing medical education and interactions that address these um, cognitive gaps. 
and we don't really have time to step through them, but if you just pick them randomly, you can look and see how questions could be built around some of these biases in this format and really help to um, let us inform the education we provide and the analytics that we're doing on the data that we already capture. Next. Now this slide, it was kind of funny that Brian also mentioned choice architecture. But this is my choice architecture question, and it kind of links into when we're creating some type of measurement tool or writing an outcomes question or a survey, not only do we need to consider cognitive biases and how can we um, write for those to capture those metrics, but we also have to be aware of how we ask questions because the way you ask a question can influence the choice that your participants select. And we could be introducing our own biases into documents that are there to evaluate their biases. Next. So here's where I, I kind of start to pull this together in a summary form and just to try to get us thinking about these things. Um, awareness is key to reducing the influence of cognitive biases on decision making. So simply knowing that these biases exist means that we can create uh, tools and instruments to uh, evaluate them. And what I found, this is just you know, an N of one, what I found that's been powerful at really helping to mitigate this has been collaboration. So collaboration has been one of the most effective tools for addressing this because it's easier to see biases in others than in yourself. And I think we've all seen this when we've ever, when we let physicians see the choice they make on a survey, the choices that the guidelines would make, and then what their peers do. There's always a lot of interest around that model in looking at analytics. And inquiry is fundamental to challenging these perceptions and conclusions that can be kind of affected by cognitive biases. Next. So there's that model again. And now you, I hope you can see that the big chunk in the middle that you know really needs attention is addressed by some of the things that um, I'm discussing here today. Because that middle chunk right there, it's a function of attitudes towards a behavior and perceived norms and personal agency toward a behavior that really moves us from knowledge and competence over to uh, a behavior. Um, next. And this slide sort of fits in here because what happens when you start asking the right questions and you're gathering the right data and you are aware of the biases and you can kind of really tool your questions towards addressing them, you start gathering very meaningful data that can lead to powerful observations. So once you create a data network, you can link program data and visualize collaborations and physician networks. So engaging in data visualizations that are only possible, they're only possible if you have the relevant data on hand. And as you can see, you can look at powerful inferences here. Just this snapshot right here can tell you within a, um, a group of physicians participating, say, even in a, a medical education program, how are they relating to each other? And you can see interesting networks and clusters there. Um, next. And just to summarize very quickly, value delivered in driving change to healthcare systems today we need to pinpoint the issues and optimal tactics to increase adoption of new care models and practices. So we can't just have, you know, here's the new guidelines, everybody fall in line. 
it's a little more complicated than that. There's patient factors, um, clinician factors, there's other stakeholders, situational factors. Uh, what I really liked about this um, opportunity was I was able to interact and listen to Dr. Barry Straub who provided the quote on the slide there where we had the opportunity to discuss thoughts around medical education. His area of expertise is healthcare economics. He was the chief medical officer at CMS. So to me, he's kind of the holy grail in knowledge of how to apply behavior and um, analytics. And you know what he said that it's a very interesting pathway to address this gap. So I, I feel like it's important to have a baseline where we facilitate analysis of what can be achieved realistically and provide measures of progress uh, during the change management efforts. And I think it's really important to, you know, really look long and hard at that duck, you know, <laughs> when we're creating our programs and to see what, you know, the needs of the community uh, being targeted for change, I think they'll be understood more proactively. And that's, I got through it. <laughs> you did. Thanks so much, Bonnie. I really appreciate it. Um, and we're going to keep right on moving because we are running about 10 minutes behind schedule. Right. So thanks Thank again, you. Bonnie. Um, just let everyone out there know, next step, um, we're going to just skip over the break and move right on to uh, qualitative research and CEHP by Wendy Terrell and Alex Halson. I'm going to close this one down, start the other one right up, and we'll get going in about five minutes. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.